What is your purpose in life? What is your purpose? If you had to really narrow that down, I know I've asked that recently, so that's, you know, you thought you were off the hook. I asked you to come up with a purpose statement. Because this week, as we're going to continue our series called Reaching for Hope, we're going to find out that there really is hope and purpose. That if we don't have a godly purpose in life, we're going to lack hope. Because hope and purpose go together like intertwined hands. They aren't the same thing, but they feed each other. It's a symbiotic relationship between hope and purpose. And God wants us to have both in life. And when we find that godly purpose that he wants us to have, our hope is found because now we know the direction we're going. We know who we are. We know what we're doing. We know why we're doing it. And suddenly the world gets a lot easier to navigate in the sense of that doesn't fit in my purpose. So I'm, it's out. That's going to rob me of my joy and my hope in my purpose. So it's out. This is going to feed my purpose in life. So it's in. And we can start making those decisions in a way that impacts our lives to an incredible degree. Because if we don't have that purpose, then we don't have that hope, we don't have that vision of the future, and we just kind of exist. And you know what? Our world right now is full of a lot of people just existing. And something bad happens when we just start to exist. We get bored. What happens when human beings get bored? Bad things. Because we start looking for what's going to make us happy. We start thinking about what I want. We start thinking about us instead of the larger picture of God's kingdom. And we just start making stupid decisions. We just do. We, we start not thinking bigger picture. We start getting a very you know, kind of microscopic view of our life and, and this is all there is and we start making decisions based on that and, and bad things start to happen. And so we're going to look at what it means to have godly purpose and to find hope in that and what happens when we miss, kind of misplace that purpose, what happens to hope. And we're going to look at it through the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and 19. Now, we're going to read first from 1 Kings 19, and then we're going to back up and kind of tell the story. But it says, Ahab, he was king, told Jezebel, his queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. 
And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So we're kind of picking up mid you know, story right here on a very powerful moment in Elijah's life. And who was Elijah? Well, Elijah was probably the most famous of prophets in the Old Testament. And what we find first in Elijah's life is that godly purpose is powerful. Okay, godly purpose is powerful. You want power in your life, link up to what God is doing and join him in it. Make God's purpose your purpose, and you're going to find that, that you have a real reason for doing what you do, a real reason for life. And what we see is that a person with no sense of purpose will distract themselves with pleasure or other empty pursuits. When Israel started chasing after idols, in this case specifically Baal, the entire nation fell into darkness. And during this time, Israel was under the despotic rule of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Idolatry was rampant and darkness was over the land. Elijah was powerfully anointed of God and he was calling Israel to repentance. And he had an amazing ministry during this time. He called about, God told him, he did everything God told him to do, and God told him to, to call for a drought over the land. So he calls for a drought, and there is a three-year drought. Now, I know in our world today, that seems like, oh, wow, that would be really bad, three years of drought. But you go back to that time, and a three-year drought meant a lot of people were dying. That means no crops. That means no water. That means everything is just dead. And, and there's no recovery from it until it rains. In three years of this, that means all, you know, kind of excess food supplies, everything are getting used up. And it's getting to a point of, of desperation for people. And so this three-year drought then culminated in Elijah's showdown with the 850 priests of the pagan gods Baal and Asherah. Now, we normally mention, you know, the 450 prophets of Baal, but it's often missed that there were also 400 prophets of the Asherah there as well. So it's 850 to 1. Now, what do we know about Baal? Who was Baal? Baal was this fertility god in, the, in that time that people thought sent rain for the crops. So what has God done here? He's trying to show Israel your God is fake. Baal doesn't exist. And so they're doing their thing, worshiping Baal, hoping, well, if we just make him happy, he'll send rain. And God has said, no, it's not going to rain. I stopped the rain, and I used Elijah to do it. And Elijah's telling him, repent, turn away from Baal. And so Elijah knew in this time he was serving the true God, and his faith, his boldness, his strength, and his resolve were extremely strong. And he directly challenged King Ahab and the nation in their sin and idolatry. Now, I know we, we read this story and we're like, yeah, Elijah's awesome. I want you to think about this, though. Ahab and Jezebel were actively murdering and executing the people of God, the priests of God, people who represented God because they wanted to convert the entire nation to Baal worship. And so standing up and being a voice was putting a target right on his back. This took courage. This took boldness. This took something inside of him that most people in his day were lacking. 
And yet he issues the challenge publicly. In 1 Kings 18, 20 and 21, it says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people. So the whole nation is gathered to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. What do we see here? We see a people, a nation without purpose. They don't know what they're doing. What does he, he says, hey, make up your mind. They're not serving God. They're not serving Baal. They're, they, they, they just kind of go back and forth between the two of them. They don't know what they believe. And what an amazing challenge that he says, hey, make up your mind. Pick one or the other. If you're going to serve Baal, then serve Baal. If you're going to serve God, then serve God. But he's like, get off the fence. Make a decision. But you know what? That's what a lack of purpose does to a person. They can't make a decision. They can't be all in on something because they don't know what they're all in on. They don't know what they're about. They don't know who they are. And so the challenge is made. And, and Elijah doesn't just challenge him here. He says, look, let's find out who the real God is. And he issues the challenge. Many of you have been in church for any amount of time. You've heard this story probably in the Old Testament. But he, he, he issues the challenge and he says, we're going to find out which is the real God. The one who sends fire from heaven, who is miraculous in his power. The one who shows up is the one who is God. And so he says, Let's set the time, and they set the time, and he says, we're going to have this here, this altar, and if whichever God you call from. Now, the God who, have, who, who is the God of rain and thunder and lightning should have no problem sending lightning from heaven, right? That's who he is. And so, in a sense, Elijah gives the Baal worshippers home field advantage. He tells them, really, if he is the God of, of the thunders, you know, the storms, then lightning from heaven should be no problem for him. And so 850 of them, the Asherah, this, this kind of had a male-female thing going on here with Baal and Asherah, so we're not going to get in, into that too much, but there, there were 450 prophets of Baal, 400 of Asherah. It was kind of a fertility thing that was very immoral. And, and so they would bring all of them in, and he says, do your thing. Do your thing and get Baal to answer, uh, Okay. And so the challenge is made, and of course, Baal fails to deliver, as expected. Why? Because Baal does not exist. Okay, this isn't that he's weaker than God, it's that he doesn't exist. They're crying out to something that doesn't exist. And I need you to listen to this. Hope placed in a non-existent God will always return void. That seems simple. And yet, it's what the enemy gets us to do over and over and over, is place our hope in something that isn't real, that doesn't exist. This is one of our enemy's main tactics, is to get us to serve the non-existent. And when people serve the non-existence, what happens to their own existence? It begins to degrade. Because we were created with an upward call. We were created with a calling to glorify the one who, and serve 
and be in relationship with the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And it's where we find our identity because we are made in his image. And so we exist with an upward calling. And when we don't serve that, there is no neutral ground. We don't get to be what God created us to be if we're not in relationship with him we start to come in below that. We start to drop down into an existence that God never intended for us. We become less than what God wants us to be. And so when people serve the non-existence, their own existence begin to degrade. Instead of protecting life, valuing life, and encouraging life, people start hating life, devaluing life, and degrading themselves. We see this in how the priests of Baal tried to summon Baal. Listen to 1 Kings 18, 28 and 29. It says, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. What kind of existence and worship is that, that they have to cut themselves just to get the attention of their God? They have to hurt themselves. They have to be violent against the very creation that they are. Now that starts to sound familiar, right? They start to be violent against themselves. How does that look today? Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, immorality, trying to, you know, gender confusion, trying to surgically make something happen that isn't ever going to be real. Violence against oneself. We begin to hate our very own existence. And so it says, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. What did they get for all of their self-harm and violence? Nothing. And this isn't just a, that, that Baal said, no, I'm not going to answer you. It says no one paid attention. Why? Because he's not there. You see, and, and this is, I know this seems elementary, but it's something that we really got to understand. It's not there. And so when we chase the non-existent, we're not going to ever get a return on it. And we've got to learn how to recognize, am I chasing what's real or am I chasing a fantasy? Am I chasing something that's just made up in my own mind or am I chasing the truth? And a question all of us has to ask over and over, and this is a difficult one. This is for Christian and, and even non-Christian alike, though the non-Christian is going to have a harder time with it. But this is a question we have to ask ourselves. If there is no spiritual fruit, no progress, no movement, it might be time to ask, am I actually serving God? You know why? Because God said, my word will not return to me void. Okay? It, it, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And he says, abide in me, you will bear fruit. And he says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, I'm going to cut off. You see, because it's not really attached. You cannot help but walk, when you are walking with God, you cannot help but bear, bear fruit of some kind. Now, I didn't say perfection. I didn't say that you would have no problems. I didn't say life would be easy. I said fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. See, what kind of person are you becoming in your service? 
Because what does God require of us? He requires our heart. And everything he commands us to do involves love of God and love of neighbor. Serving his kingdom, standing for what's right. Which means the heart has to be transformed over and over and changed. And we have to grow. What do we see from the priests of Baal here? They're lashing themselves. They're bleeding. They're cutting. They're hurting themselves just to try to get their God's attention. Just hoping that he'll listen. That something will happen. That's not hope. That hope was returned completely void. See, in the case of the priests of Baal, this is obvious. They were openly serving a pagan fiction. Their belief and their purpose in life became self-destructive. And it was destructive to this entire nation. Now, we can contrast that. We see that Elijah was, in fact, serving the one true God. Listen to his prayer, okay? Now, what he does is he builds an altar. He, it's got the 12 stones. He builds this whole altar reminiscent of the history of what God has done so he knows who he is. He knows where he comes from. He knows who God is. And he builds this altar, and he slaughters a bull, and he puts it on her. And then what does he do? He starts pouring just barrels and barrels of water over it. Now, remember, this is in the middle of a drought. So he's wasting water in the middle of a drought, but he floods this altar. He digs a trench around it, and the trench is full of water. I mean, he has just doused this, this idol, or this idol, this, this altar, not idol. He, he, he doused this altar with water because maybe there's a drought. He doesn't want any question when this thing catches fire how it happened. But listen to his prayer. It says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He knows who he is. He knows his history. He knows who God is. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant. He knows his place. He knows who he's calling to. And he says, and that I have done all these things at your word. This isn't my idea. I'm not taking credit for this. Isn't that amazing that in this moment of prayer, he doesn't take credit. He wants people to know God, not him. Not him. And he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. His heart is for other people. And you know what I love about this? Is he doesn't actually ever defend God. Don't you love it? He, he just shows up and does what God tells him. He doesn't defend God. He doesn't get in an argument with the priest of Baal of like, no, my God's more powerful. Why? Because he knows that. He knows Baal doesn't exist. He's not going to argue with idiots. And he's just not. In fact, what does he do? While they're lashing themselves, while they're bleeding and they're doing all this, what's he doing? He's laughing at them. He says, hey, yell louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. He says that. So maybe he's going to, maybe he's gone on a trip and he's not back yet. Now, why is he doing this? Is he gloating a little bit, but he's showing them, he's pointing out, it's useless. What you're doing is useless. It's not helping. Nobody's going to answer. And so here, his prayer reveals a life purpose with God. God told Elijah to do this, and he's doing it, trusting God to answer. It allows him to be bold. It gives him courage to stand up against the corruption and darkness around him. Why? Because godly purpose matters. It brings power to our lives. 
It brings power. See, in Proverbs 28.1, it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Think of that. The wicked flee when no one pursues. See, a life without purpose, you might as well be running from life. You might as well be running from, from everything all the time. You'll live in this anxious state of fear, not knowing what's coming next. Wondering what's going to happen in life. How are we going to make it? You'll worry about everything. You'll be anxious about everything. But what does he say? He says, the righteous, those with godly purpose and character in life, what does he say? They're bold as a lion. They're not afraid of life. Now, it doesn't say they're stupid. It doesn't say they're belligerent. It doesn't say that, you know, they just walk in a room believing that God's going to bless everything they do all the time. That's arrogance. But here he says they're bold as a lion. They, they know their purpose. They know who they are. And Elijah's faithfulness led God to sending fire from heaven that consumed the offering, and it led to the death of thousands of the pagan priests of Baal and Asherah. It is one of the high points of God's power and example of the power of faith in the Old Testament. Listen to 1 Kings 18, 38 through 40. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, Kishon and slaughtered them there. Man, what an amazing moment, right? He won, right? Elijah won. This is it. Except... Something weird happens after this. Because we find out that misplaced purpose destroys hope. And Elijah actually misplaced his purpose just slightly. And it's just enough that it affects him personally. Does it affect the will of God? No. Does it affect the plans of God? No. Is he an open sin and rebellion against God? No. And that's what's important here. It's not always a matter of either you're sinning or you're obeying. Sometimes we can just put our heart into something and it's not what God has told us to do. And we haven't crossed into sin, but we also are putting our hope in something that's not ever going to deliver. It's not ever going to happen the way we want it to and so when it doesn't, what happens to us? Bad things. We, we start to lose hope. We start to lose faith. We start to lose our purpose in life. And at that moment, we really, I mean, when God kind of evens it out, we realize, like, that was me. That wasn't God that did that. That was me. I'm the one that made the mistake. And it's not sin. And yet it can lead to a life crisis, a faith crisis crisis. You see, misplaced hope might be hope placed in a good thing, but not the right thing, but not the thing that God has told you to put your hope in. Misplaced hope can happen to anyone, and it's as easy as letting a good thing that we want take the place of trusting God with all things. It happened to Elijah, and it devastated him. And this brings us back to today's scripture. 
Okay, listen again to verses 1 through 4. So this is immediately after all of the priests have been slaughtered. You, you think, hey, they've won. You know, this is it. They're, the nation is now going to turn back to God, except they didn't. And it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. This man who just stared down 850 to 1 is now running for his life because he got a mean note. Something's not playing out here. Something's off. She doesn't even have the means because a whole bunch of people were just killed and, and the people of Israel were with Elijah in this. Something's not adding up. Why would he run for his life? And so it says, Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He wants to die. And he's fully expecting to die. He's like, this is it. My life has no meaning anymore. And this is right after like the biggest victory that you could see in the Old Testament almost. This is like, this is like Moses parting the Red Sea and getting to the other side and saying, no, just kill me. But it's what happened. After such an amazing show of faith, strength, boldness, and courage, why would he run in fear and wither in despair? Two words, misplaced. Though he trusted God, he also put his hope, his desire, in the entire nation returning to God, including the godless Ahab and Jezebel. His hope, what he, what he wanted to happen, was after this has happened, that Ahab and Jezebel, and if you know your biblical history, these two were horrible people, would be like, you know what, Elijah, we were wrong. We repent and we put our trust in the living God. Thank you for showing us the error of our ways. Now, how often does that happen in this world? When people are fully committed to evil, as they were, not confused, not just deceived, but fully committed. And trust me, Jezebel was. There's a reason that name reverberates even today when you say Jezebel, that it has a negative connotation because this woman was evil. And there are people in this world who simply have sold themselves to evil, given themselves over to it, enjoy it, want it, and they themselves have become evil. Not everything is a mental illness. Sometimes it's just evil. There are evil people in this world. And Elijah put his hope that these evil people who were on the throne were going to repent. And when they didn't, it crushed him. Because he put everything he had into it. And it crushed him. The despair then was too much. And for us, it looks strange. We're like, you just stared down 851. God sent fire from heaven. Surely you're, you have enough faith to think, you know what? God can handle this. 
but he had his hope placed in something that, that God never told him was going to happen. God just told him to show up. He just said, show up, do this. He didn't say, I'm turning the entire nation back to me in this moment. He never told him that. Elijah filled that gap in. Now you see the danger in that. When we go filling in gaps and God didn't say it, we will get misplaced hope. You see, Elijah thought his purpose was to heal the nation. It wasn't. What was his purpose? His purpose was to be a prophet and do exactly what God told him to do and trust God with the outcome. And there's a huge difference there. Elijah put himself up to the task of reforming a corrupt nation, and that wasn't his task. It was not his job. And when it didn't happen, he was devastated. You see, Proverbs 13, 12 says it perfectly. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now think about that for just a moment. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, of course, the surface reading is this is, yes, we all enjoy getting what we want. But it doesn't say a desire fulfilled. What does it say? Hope deferred. Or it does say desire fulfilled, but it says hope deferred. You see, how many of you in here have ever gotten what you wanted but didn't really get what you wanted? You thought, if I get this, achieve this, get to this place, this happens, then I'll be happy. And then when you got there, you found out it's not what you thought it was. And that, that, uh, that hope just still seemed elusive at that point. You know, it's like, well, maybe it's further down the road. Maybe this isn't what I thought. You know, when, when my bank account gets this many zeros in it rather than just one. That was a joke. <laughs> you know, when my bank account has this many zeros in it, then, then I'll feel good about life. And you get there and what do you do? You're just like, well, I, maybe I need another zero. Maybe that's not enough. And you see, if we don't ever find that purpose that we're like, yes, this is what I'm about, what does it say? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You see, if we aren't serving God and we're serving anything else, even if it's a good thing, Elijah was serving a good thing. That's why he wasn't in sin. This wasn't rebellion against God. He just filled in gaps unnecessarily and gave himself a purpose that wasn't his. Only God can save the nation, not him. And he isolated himself in this. And in doing so, when it didn't happen, he thought, I'm a failure. Was Elijah a failure? Anything but. He'd been powerfully faithful to God in a moment, in a, in a life. And you see, this proverb seems simple, but as with all godly implications, the implications are broad and deep. We are wired with ambition. God made us that way. Okay, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's the command from God. It's hardwired into nature. It's hardwired into us. We will have some sort of ambitious desire, okay? We, we are meant to reach. And when we reach for the wrong thing, we're going to be disappointed. And, and so... We naturally set our hearts on the things we desire. And that's not a bad thing unless we desire the wrong things. 
And this is what happened before sin entered the world. This would have been an amazing, godly ambition that would have built amazing things in this world to the glory of God. You see, he hardwired men and women to, 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 to want to have family and to want to build in the world, to go conquer the world. And imagine all of that drive that God put in without sin in the world messing it up. This world would have been something amazing if Adam and Eve hadn't, Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. It, because they would have built to the glory of God on everything and it all would have reflected his glory. It would have been just beyond imagination. And yet, what happened? Sin entered the world, and the Bible says in Genesis 3-7, then the eyes of both were opened. What was it open to? It says they knew, now knew good and evil. This isn't just that they were going to make a moral judgment between what's right and wrong. This is so much deeper than that. Okay? They now had the knowledge of good and evil, meaning that they now had the ability to see that which is not. See, they would have built only with that which is in mind, with, with God and his kingdom and his goodness and his love and his power and, and our connection to each other and what's right and good and eternal in view. But now we can build with ideas that aren't rooted in reality driving them, right? We can now fight wars where we pretend that one side is actually good and another isn't. When, you know, in reality, everybody's wrong. And it's needless death and needless suffering. You see, we, we now have the ability to convince ourselves that something is good that isn't good. Which means we have the ability to see that which is not. We can literally create a reality in our own mind that is not real. And chase it, serve it, build to it, bow down to it, serve it, and sacrifice to it. That's what the nation of Israel was doing. And, and so they could set their desires on things that didn't exist and could never exist. So what happens when sinful humanity sets its desire and its hope to something that does not and cannot exist? In time, humanity's heart grows sick. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And so long as we have a life purpose that is not in line with God, we will have a heart that is sick, that is ill, that gives up on life. But Proverbs still has, what does he say? He says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. What are worthless pursuits? Those things that don't exist. It's a worthless pursuit. Whoever works his land, what's it saying? Those who live in reality, those who chase what's real, who, who have a purpose that is in creating something good, what's it say? They'll have plenty of bread. Their longings will be fulfilled. Which it says the desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Elijah's heart became sick because his purpose in life for a short time was focused on something that he couldn't accomplish. And that wasn't going to be accomplished. Not the way he thought. That was never going to happen. Ahab and Elijah were never going to repent and put their trust in God. Wasn't going to happen. And he put his hope in that happening and when it didn't, 
it crushed him to the point that what does he do? He goes out into the desert and just says, God, kill me. Just kill. I just want to die now. And this isn't a joke. He's literally, he, he sends his servant away. He wanders out there by himself and he's like, I just, I got no reason to live now. This is depression. This is despair. This is loss of hope. Everything wrapped up in one moment where this man is like, God, just kill me. And he actually prays it. Just let me die. Think about that. Why would he want to die when he's just seen these powerful movements of God? Except that his hope was in the wrong place. And now it's despair. But here's the good news. We're not ever stuck in that place. We don't have to be stuck there. Godly purpose brings renewed hope. You know God can renew that hope within a person. All we've got to do is get right with him again. Just there, there are lessons we have to learn. But godly purpose brings renewed hope. And so it goes on in 1 Kings 19, 5 through 8. It says, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And an angel of the Lord touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. This is like manna in the desert. He, he is lost. He's despairing. And God's grace meets him where he is. Could God show up and lecture him? Yes. Did he? No. He said, I get it. I get it, Elijah. Here, have, have some food, drink some water, take a nap, have a break. And then the next day, same thing again, gives him some food. It says, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of Forty days and forty nights. You see, there is a desert wandering period when we want to find our new hope, when we want to restore our hope and find our new purpose. You're going to have a bit of a desert wandering period while we kind of have to kill that false purpose that we had before. Again, he's not in sin, but his life does need redirecting. Don't let Satan, if, if we get in this place where we kind of lose that sense of purpose, don't let Satan convince you that this is a fatal failure and God's disappointed and he's mad at you and you can never recover because that's not how it works. God is always there and he will restore that hope and he will restore that purpose, but there will be a process to it. It doesn't happen overnight. And so God wasn't finished with Elijah even though Elijah was finished with Elijah. But God wasn't. Elijah was as low as a human can get. Okay? And so he goes out there, and he had become so focused on outcome that he forgot his purpose and ours is in being faithful to the word of the Lord. We find our hope not in outcomes. We find our hope in faithfulness the word of the Lord. If you've been faithful to the word of the Lord, you've succeeded. That's all we can do in this life. Nothing else is guaranteed. Nothing. We, we can't make 
things turn out the way we want them to. But we can be faithful to God and trust that what's best is what's going to end up. That God will direct us where we need to be, how we need to be, who we need to be. That God will do that for us and through us, but we have to trust him and we got to follow his word. We have to be faithful. And so God had to change his mind. And listen to this. This is a little bit longer, but it says, Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only. Somebody see a problem with that? Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he had to take his eyes off of outcomes and get it back on the word of the Lord. He had to stop being impressed by outward circumstances and stop being influenced by outward circumstances and start listening for the word of God. And how did that come to him? It came to him in a whisper. Now, how hard do you think it is to hear a whisper in the middle of an earthquake and a fire? In, in mountains being torn in two by wind? That's some wind. Think of the chaos that's going on around him, and yet God speaks to him in a whisper that he can God may not take away the chaos of your life, but he will speak to you in it. And it will be a whisper that we all can hear if we listen. And we can be faithful to the word of Lord in, in any situation. And so what does he do? He renews his purpose. Okay, it says in the Lord God, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Oh, so there's going to be another king, not Ahab. Hey, that's pretty cool how you work that out, God. Maybe you were in control the whole time. And it says, in Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel and Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what did he just do? He just gave him a new purpose. He says, look, things are going on, Elijah world didn't stop because you had a mental breakdown. But it's okay. Go back. There's going to be a new king, new king here, new king here, and your replacement, you need to anoint them. And everybody that has been involved with Ahab and Jezebel are going to die. 
And at this point, Elijah's like, oh, okay. And you know what? He feels better about life. He found his purpose again, and he goes back, and he is again faithful to the word of the Lord. If you've lost your sense of hope and purpose, just redirect it back to the kingdom of God. Get back into the word of the Lord. Stop looking at outcomes. Stop looking at circumstances. Stop looking at everything around you as evidence of what God is doing and start listening to the word of the Lord and being faithful to that and watch how it changes things. And part of being faithful to the things of God is, of course, sharing the Lord's Supper together. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul says, as often as you do this, you proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes again. You see, we proclaim that Jesus Christ died for us on the cross, was raised again on the third day, and was resurrected into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. It is Jesus whom we serve, it is his kingdom. He is Lord. He is king. And so together, we proclaim that he gave his life for us on the cross and that the bread that he broke at that last Passover was symbolic of his body, which was broken for us. And after he had taken the bread, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which shall be given and so we confess together by doing this that the body and the blood of Jesus was the price for our salvation. And so together we eat of the bread. And together we drink from the cup. Father God, thank you so much for this day. And God, I pray that you help all of us, Lord, to find our hope in the purpose that you have given us. That you would be our hope, that your kingdom, faithfulness to you and you alone. God, that outcomes, circumstances, those are in your hands, God. I pray that our hearts would simply long to be faithful to you and to trust you to work things where you want them to be. God, we know that you are good and that everything you do is good. And so, God, bring us to a place in life where we can trust you with our lives, with the direction of our lives, with the purpose of our lives. God, give us that hope that does not disappoint. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.